the book of Romans, chapter 4, and as I said, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 25. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified, because the law produces wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be? He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and that we get to so freely sit here and hold it in our hands. Lord, I pray that as we go through this passage here this morning, that you would be the one doing the speaking. Lord, that you would help me to rightly divide your word and that each one of us would approach this passage with open hearts and open minds, and open ears, with eyes that are fixed on you, Lord, so that you can do the work that you desire inside of each one of us through your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we surrender to you, we recognize our need for you, um, and we pray that you would mold us and change us through your word here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So as I mentioned last week, last um, this is a two-part sermon really. We did part one last week and we're doing part two of that message here this morning. And so if you missed last week, I apologize because we're going to be referring back to a couple things that we explained a little bit more thoroughly, but I'm going to try and provide some on-ramps. So if you weren't here last week, you'll be able to to follow along with our passage. So today is part two. Last week we covered a lot about Abraham. We spoke a lot about him and what we see in Genesis and how he's referred to as as father Father Abraham, because from his seed, the nation of Israel came into being. And from his seed, the Messiah would come. And through our faith in Jesus, since Jesus was from the seed of Abraham, we can call Abraham our father as well, even today. And we really focused last week on how Abraham was credited with righteousness before he could do anything before he could do anything that would even appear to be him doing something righteous on his own. And Paul makes the case that it was Abraham's faith that made him righteous. And now in the exact same way, 
It is our faith in Jesus Christ that makes us righteous. It's by grace through faith that we are saved. So let's pick up in verse 13, starting part two of this sermon. It says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. The reason that the promise to Abraham had to be through faith is because nobody can uphold the law and obey the fullness of the law on their own. Jesus was the only one in history that could do that, and he did exactly that. He fulfilled the law for us. And God knew this from day one of giving the law. His plan for righteousness was never through absolute adherence to the law. You know, the law, it's like a mirror for self-examination for us. It reveals God's character. It reveals that God, uh, what God sees to be best for us. That is why we were given the law. But he knew it would not save anyone. It was always the plan for God that it was going to be through faith that God would credit righteousness to anybody. From the first seed of Israel in Abraham, that was the plan. Look at verse 14. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified, because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. If the law could save us, if the law could make us heirs, there would be no point in faith. There would be no point in trusting God, because that means that we could do it on our own. We could attain salvation on our own. But Paul's asking, where would we be if we didn't have the law? So look at what he says in verse 15 once again. The law produces wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. You know, at first read, you think, no law, no transgression. Then why did God give us the law in the first place? If it produces wrath... And having the law leads to transgressions against the law, then why have it in the first place? So I want to give you an example to help us kind of understand this in a modern day context. Say a family is going camping, and they're going to be camping next to a fast-flowing river. Right when they get there, the parents tell their seven-year-old son, come down to the river with me. And so they go down to the, to the bank of the river in the sand, and they draw a long line all the way across the sand of the, of the shore, 10 feet away from the water. And they tell their son, you can play in the sand all that you want while you're here, but do not cross that line. If you cross that line, you can't play in the sand for the rest of our trip. The kid understands. He tells the parents that he understands. He understands this rule that he's been given, this law that he's been given by his parents. So the next day, the mom and dad, they're making breakfast, and they look down by the bank, and their seven-year-old son is ankle-deep in the river. They run down, and just as he steps in a hole in the river, the mom reaches out her hand, and the son reaches out and grabs onto that hand, and she pulls him to the shore for safety. The mom shook to the core. She carries him back to the campsite and lets him know that he can no longer play in the sand at all for the rest of the trip. Tells him he has to stay right around the tent for the rest of the trip. The kid cries, he throws a fit, he thinks his parents are just the worst. 
And the kid has a horrible attitude toward his parents for the rest of the trip. He makes life as miserable as possible for everyone that's on that trip. Now, here's the question. Why did the parents give that law, give that rule in the first place? Because they didn't want him to get swept away in the river and drown, right? Next question is, why did they enforce it? They enforced it because they love that kid. They don't want to lose him, and they couldn't trust that kid in the water. But I think we could look at this from a different angle, couldn't we? If the parent didn't draw that line in the sand, then everybody would be happy, wouldn't they? They wouldn't have to discipline their child. He would have been in a better mood. The camping trip could have been so much more pleasant for everyone if they just didn't make that rule. I mean, really, that law just provoked wrath from that child, didn't it? If they didn't draw that line in the sand, the kid wouldn't have gotten in trouble and could have kept playing on the beach, and everybody would be happier. You know, everybody may have been happier for a time, but with no law and no consequences, that kid would have been right back in the water, and maybe his mom wasn't there the next time that he needed to be grabbed. So look at verse 15 again. Because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. So no transgressions doesn't equal good. I want to make sure we understand that. No transgressions does not mean it's good. No law and no transgressions means we're getting swept away into something that's going to lead to death. The law just points out, hey, that's going to lead to death. You shouldn't cross that line. God says, here's the law so that you know what rivers to stay away from. That's why he's giving us the law. And God tells us, you know, that river's better to stay away from. Actually, you should probably stay 10 feet away from that river because it's so dangerous to your life. But God knows that we can't stay away from the river, doesn't he? He knows us too well. He knows that we'll cross that line and that we'll put our toes in the water. I mean, no one ever gets swept away by just putting their toes in the water, right? But it's really hot. So we think, well, I'll just go ankle deep into this dangerous river. You know, it's, it's really hot. I'm just going to go to my knees. But then we step in a hole, and before we know it, we're swept away in whatever sin that might be. So in his grace, when we just can't help but step into that river... Because of our belief in him, he extends his hand to us. And all we have to do is reach back out and grab hold of it, and he'll pull us back to safety. And then God looks at us and says, I forgive you. But God also, just like the parents in this story, he disciplines the ones that he loves. Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12 says, Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Just because God rescues us from our sin, it doesn't mean that we won't have consequences, that we won't have discipline that come from him. It's because he loves us too much to let us keep going back to that river. But he is faithful to rescue us. 
if our faith is found in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16 with me. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. So the new covenant through Jesus is a covenant of grace. It's by grace through faith that we enter into it, getting something that we don't deserve. And that something that we don't deserve is salvation, is forgiveness of sins that only comes through Jesus Christ. Yet, we find ourselves so often still trying to earn grace from God, still trying to earn it from Him. Have you ever seen a tandem bicycle? You know, where it's the two riders, there's the one long chain, there's the two sets of pedals, all going back to that back tire. Faith and grace are like two riders on a tandem bicycle. They're working together, they're going in the same direction. If you try to put grace and works on that same bicycle, works turns around and starts pedaling the opposite direction. (laughs) And you end up going nowhere. Because works doesn't help grace. We don't earn more grace by having more works. God's grace is sufficient all by itself. When we put works on the bike with us, it accomplishes the opposite of what we think it's going to do. We start experiencing less grace because we start to believe that we have to earn it. The only time that works are good in a believer's life is when we do them out of love for Jesus and not not out of any ulterior motives. Just because we love God and we love others, that's why we should have works in our life. And that's why we want to see God's kingdom advanced because we can't imagine somebody living without God in their life. You know, we mentioned last week and... Uh, We'll mention it again here this morning, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. And that's where it says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And what Paul is saying here in verse 16 in our passage this morning is that this new covenant is offered equally to Jews and to Gentiles. Abraham is the father of us all that believe. That's why we're called believers as Christians. We're called believers because of that faith, just like Abraham had. We have the same belief and confidence in who God is and that what he will, that he will do what he says he will do. And that theme continues in verse 17, so let's look at that together. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, In the presence of the God in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. So in Psalm 33, it talks a lot about God creating everything. And in verse 9 specifically of Psalm 33, it says, For he, referring to God, spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. And I think what Paul is getting at in verse 17 is that our works and our trespasses are dead in the law. Because Ephesians 2.1 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
And Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. So that's where we were. And God called to life. He called into existence righteousness that we did not have previously. If God can speak creation into existence, he can speak righteousness into our lives. He can speak righteousness and credit it to our account as if it was our own, as a free gift. And we don't have to question if it's enough. Do we have enough from God? We don't have to earn more grace than he's already given. We don't have to earn any part of our salvation. It's a free gift from God. We just need to believe and have faith just like Abraham had. Verse 18. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what had been spoken, so will your descendants be. So even though there was no reason for Abraham to hope for a child before this promise from God, and we're going to see a little bit more about that in verse 19, he had no reason to hope because of his physical age and the age of his wife, Sarah. They were well beyond childbearing years. There was no reason for hope, yet he had hope in what God told him. And he believed that he would be the father of many nations. Like we see in verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. There's two key phrases in verses 19 and 20 there. In verse 19, it's did not weaken in faith. In verse 20, it's did not waver in unbelief. God told him the impossible was going to happen. And in verse 20, it says it strengthened his faith. It didn't weaken it. It didn't make it waver. It actually strengthened his faith when God said that he was going to do the impossible. This is the faith that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. Faith that God can do the impossible. And when God says he's going to do the impossible, it says Abraham believed him fully. Can't believe him fully if there's any doubt that's creeping in, can you? This makes me think of a similar but different scenario that we see in Scripture with Zechariah. Zechariah was visited by the angel Gabriel while he was doing his priestly duty in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were also advanced in age, well along in years. They were past their childbearing years. And Gabriel tells him, Zechariah, the angel Gabriel says that they will have a son, referring to John the Baptist. And Zechariah questions how it would be possible since he and his wife were so advanced in age. Gabriel tells him, since you doubted, you're going to be mute until your son is born. But can you see the contrast there between Zechariah and Abraham? Zechariah couldn't see past the physical barrier that was before God. Abraham knew he was worshiping a God that spoke all things into existence. He knew he was worshiping the God that has no physical barriers. Look at verse 21 again. 
He was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Fully convinced. Not somewhat convinced, not pretty sure that he thought maybe God could do it. He was fully convinced that God was able to come through on his promise, even though conventional wisdom said there's no way. Even though his wife Sarah laughed when she heard about it. Even after his wife Sarah said, yeah, this isn't going to happen. Why don't you just sleep with my slave and we'll have an heir through her. Even with all of that, Abraham was fully convinced and his faith didn't weaken or waver. No wonder Abraham's known for his faith, right? And verse 22 says, Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Having faith against all odds, his proper perspective of the God that he was worshiping, his trust in his submission to God, that is what was credited to him for righteousness. Verse 23, Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Righteousness will be credited to us as believers in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Verse 25, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was delivered. He was handed over. Jesus was handed over to the authorities. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. The father gave. And Jesus gave himself. He didn't resist. He went to the cross willfully in our place. He was delivered up for our trespasses, for our sins. He became our substitutionary atonement. Jesus paying for our offenses. And he rose again for our justification. Justification being the act of God declaring men free from guilt and acceptable to him. You know, I think it's important to distinguish something here. When we say believe in Jesus, it doesn't just mean that we believe that he was a real person 2,000 years ago, which we should, or that he actually still exists in heaven, which we also should, or even that he's God, all of which those things are true and we should believe. But when we talk about believing in Jesus, we're talking about belief that through his work on the cross and being raised from the grave, that God is pleased with that sacrifice and will credit righteousness to our account because of the works of Jesus and not because of our own works. That's the belief that we're talking about. That what he said he has done through Jesus, he has actually done. And belief that our salvation is through Jesus and that our sins are forgiven. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you, if you've never come to that place of faith in your life, today is the day. (laughs) All you need to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Christ, that he is the Lord, that he did all of those things that he said he has done. And you're saved. You're adopted into the family of God. And you can do that sitting exactly right where you are right now. And if you do, I just encourage you after the service to come up and tell me um, so I can give you some next steps. I'd love to pray with you and, and get to know you a little bit better. Let's pray together.
Jesus, we, as we look at all that you did for us, Lord, it, it should just blow our minds to think about that. That there's nothing we can do to earn more grace. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. It's all been done. So Lord, I pray that all of our works, everything that we do for you, that we do for your kingdom, would come from a place of a pure heart and a desire of doing those things because we love you so much. Because we want to see your kingdom built up and expanded because we love people too much to, to watch them walk down a road of destruction. We love people too much to see them just being caught in the rivers of sin and being pulled away and drowning in those. Lord, we know that you are the rescuer. You can rescue us from ourselves, and you've already done the work. Jesus has already paid the price on the cross. So Lord, I pray um, that you would use us to do good works, not because we think we're earning anything, but just because we love you so much. We thank you so much for the, the free gift of salvation. Free to us, Jesus, you paid everything. We thank you that you've made it so easy, so easy that sometimes we can't comprehend it, or we think that we're doing something wrong because you've made it so clear and so easy. Lord, we, we put our faith in you. We put our trust in you and we thank you for the free gift of Jesus Christ.